Good morning, Grace. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 14. And while you're turning there, let me remind you that on Sunday evenings, I teach a class uh, in church history about church history called Church History for Dummies. And I want to invite you to that at 6 o'clock. We just wrapped up a couple months looking at the apostolic fathers, those who kind of took over leadership from the apostles like Peter and James and John. And tonight we begin looking at a group called the Apologists. And what we're going to see is that apologetics in the second century looks a lot different than the apologetics that you and I might know in the 20th and 21st century. Uh, The apologists weren't influenced like apologetics today because apologetics today has been influenced by rationalism that came out of the 18th century. And so apologetics in the 2nd century for 2nd century Christians had nothing to do with rationalism. It was all about clarifying what Christians believe, what distinctive Christian belief is. So I'd like you to come back at 6 o'clock if that interests you. In our liturgy this morning, our call to worship and our scripture reading were both from Hosea chapter 11. So let me read it once again because these are some of the most beautiful words in scripture. The Lord says through the prophet Hosea, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Here's what God is saying to us from this verse. When we run away from Jesus, his heart is overthrown with compassion and he moves out in tenderness toward us. The ESV translates this Hebrew word there, recoil. It's the Hebrew word really that's used of like flipping over a pancake. In fact, the prophet Hosea uses it in chapter 7, verse 8, to say that Ephraim is like a pancake not turned over. They're they're burning in their sin. They need to flip and come back to the Lord, but they don't. And here the Lord says, my heart within me is being flipped over like a pancake coming to you, my people, in tenderness and in kindness and in compassion. Yes, God does discipline his children, but his knee-jerk reaction is one of kindness. After all, what leads us to repentance? Does the law, does being told, you better get your act together, you better straighten up, does that Draw us back to Jesus? Do the whips and the terrors and the threats of the law draw us back home to our first love? No, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, as Paul says in Romans 2.4. And we see his kindness here in Hosea 11. Right before verse 8 and verse 4, the Lord says that he led his people with cords of kindness and with bands of love. He says, I didn't put the hook in your mouth and drag you and force you to follow me. Instead, I led you with cords of kindness. So we see his kindness in here because when we run away after other lovers, after other gods, after other idols, Yahweh's compassion actually grows warm and tender. 
The Hebrew word that's used here for warm, kamar, is used in the book of Lamentations of an oven heating up. It's also used when Joseph saw his little brother Benjamin. After all those years, his heart began to warm up with affection and love for his little brother. And so, here's the amazing thing. For us Christians, God's anger does not flare up when we sin, rather his compassion does. His heart heats up like an oven, not with anger, but with compassion. I mean, think about that. It's incredible. This is why grace is amazing. And that's how Jesus feels about you today, Christian. I don't care what kind of week you had. I don't care what you did this week. It will not keep Jesus away. I don't care if you totally blew it as a parent. I don't care if you looked at porn. I don't care if you contemplated suicide or if you didn't even read your Bible, or even if you didn't want to read your Bible, Jesus is not going to hand you over and he's not going to give up on you. He is committed to this relationship even if or even when you aren't. And so Jesus says this to you today. How can I hand you over? Oh, insert your name here. So go ahead, insert your name in there. How can I hand you over today, Bob? How can I hand you over today, Sally? Hear him say that to you today. Jesus loves you so much that he is not giving up. He's like Rick Astley who sings, he's never going to give you up. He's never going to let you down, right? He's never going to run around and desert you. And so it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks of you today. If somebody else has given up on you, somebody else has abandoned you, somebody else is just sick and tired of you in the way that you are, and they've walked away, that doesn't matter. Jesus will never do that to you. He will chase you down time after time to recapture your heart. He loves you with a zealous love that is redemptive. That means he wants to rescue you from you and from all of your destructive ways. He wants to change you and transform you, and it's all driven by his jealousy. But please understand that when I say that Jesus is jealous, it's not like the jealousy that we often see or what what we might think it is. When we say that Jesus is jealous, we mean the kind of jealousy like when a spouse is betrayed. It's not some out-of-control, crazy ex-girlfriend kind of jealousy. It's not some junior high boy who is jealous because the girl that he likes doesn't like him, and she's talking to another guy, and so he's jealous and begins to act out. This is the jealousy that comes from a lover being betrayed. It's not some crazy ex-girlfriend kind of jealousy. This is not... I'm going to key the side of your truck and slash your tires kind of jealousy. God's jealousy is not like what Carrie Underwood sings in her song, 
before he cheats, where she says this, I dug my key into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive, carved my name into his leather seats. I took a Louisville slugger to both headlights. I slashed a hole in all four tires. Maybe next time he'll think before he cheats. Jesus is not like that. He won't key the side of your car or slash your tires. But he will discipline you because he loves you. He will chase you down time after time to recapture your heart. And that's what we see him doing with King Rehoboam and the nation of Judah in our passage today. So turn to 1 Kings chapter 14 if you haven't. There we will see that Yahweh, and that's God's covenant name in the Hebrew language, we're going to see that Yahweh gets provoked to jealousy because his people start worshiping other gods. We saw that last week with King Jeroboam and the nation of Israel, and today we're going to see it with King Rehoboam and the nation of Judah. And what we're going to see is that the way that Judah, the southern kingdom, conduct their worship practices and what they actually do in church is quite shocking. What they do inside church is actually quite shocking. More shocking than even what a crazy ex-girlfriend might do to your car. So 1 Kings chapter 14, beginning in verse 21, and hear the word of the Lord. Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite. Now while this appears on the surface as just a brief verse about Rehoboam's reign, it's actually very telling. Rehoboam was 41 when he began to reign as king over Judah. He died when he was 58. But what is significant is where he reigned. The text says that he reigned in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And so the author of 1 Kings goes out of his way to describe Jerusalem as the special place that Yahweh had chosen out of all the cities in Israel to put his name there. This was all part of Yahweh's plan going back to Deuteronomy chapter 14 where he said he would do this. And so when the Old Testament speaks of the name of the Lord, it's not just referring to his covenant name, Yahweh. It's referring to his nature. It's referring to his character. It's referring to who he is and what he is like. And so when Yahweh puts his name in Jerusalem, it means that he wants his nature. It means that he wants his ways. It means he wants his character. It means that he wants who he is and what he is like to be made known to his people. In other words, he wants his reputation made public so that people can come and enjoy him. And King Rehoboam loses sight of this. As the king, Rehoboam was to be the moral compass of the nation. He was to lead the people and to show them who Yahweh was and to tell them what Yahweh was like. He was to make the name of Yahweh public. But notice what comes immediately after this in the last part of verse 21. It says that his mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite. Now, fast forward 
to verse 31. And Re- speaking of his death, and Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite. So in verse 31, we get another reference to Jerusalem, the city of David, where Yahweh had put his name, and we get another reference to the name of Rehoboam's mother, Naamah the Ammonite. So why do we get her name repeated, and why do we get Jerusalem, the city of David, being repeated? What is the author of 1 Kings saying to us through this repetition? I mean, he's told us once in verse 21 who Rehoboam's mother was, and he told us that Rehoboam reigned in Jerusalem, the city of David. Did the author of 1 Kings think that we would forget all this information 10 verses later? I mean, we're not that dumb, right? Why the repetition of her name? And why the repetition of the city of Jerusalem? Here's what I think is happening. The author is showing us that Yahweh's glory did not control King Rehoboam's life. Yahweh's name, who he was and what he was like, was not his focus. Rather, the name that controlled Rehoboam's life was his mother, Naamah, the Ammonite. Rehoboam was a mama's boy. And that's why her name gets dropped here two times. Rehoboam was not living for Yahweh's glory. He was influenced by his mother's Ammonite worldview. He was shaped by Ammonite culture, shaped by Ammonite belief, shaped by Ammonite religion. And all of this was part of the fallout of Rehoboam's dad, King Solomon, who had married all those foreign women. And it led King Rehoboam down a path of very grotesque idolatry. Look at verse 22. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed, more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So verse 22 tells us that Rehoboam and the nation of Judah provoked the Lord to jealousy with their sins. This is the same Hebrew word that we saw last week that was used to describe King Jeroboam and what was happening in Israel. This word is used all over the Old Testament to describe how God's people have provoked him by their sin and by their rebellion. And so like we saw last week, we get a sense of how this word is used and what this word provoked means because it's used in 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you remember that story, it describes in that chapter how mean the lady Penina was to Hannah Because Hannah couldn't have any children. And so the smart-mouthed Penina, who had a litter of kids, would provoke and ridicule and belittle Hannah because her pregnancy test kept showing up at the negative. We would say that Penina was driving Hannah up the wall. Na-na-na-na-na-na, you can't have kids, and I have a bunch of them. That's the idea with this Hebrew word, provoke. And any time 
we want to live in defiance and rebellion against the Lord and say, na 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 na, you can't stop me. It's a very scary and dangerous place to be. King Rehoboam in the nation of Judah, just like Jeroboam, provoked the Lord to jealousy. They drove him up the wall with their idolatry. Understand this. Yahweh is jealous for his people. Jesus is jealous for his people. He even says this in the Ten Commandments. It's a part of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 through 6. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. In fact, not only is Yahweh jealous for his people, his name is jealous. Exodus 34 verse 14 says, For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Did anyone ever share that with you when they shared the gospel with you? Did anyone tell you that the God who wants to save sinners is jealous, that his name is Jealous? That Jealous died for your sins? Why doesn't anyone write a worship song to the Jealous God. Maybe I will. Why don't we sing Jealous, the name above every other name. Jealous, the only one who could ever save. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. And so the next time your friends at work ask you about the God that you worship, or a family member asks you about the God that you worship, don't tell them that his name is Jesus. Tell them his name is Jealous. That'll start up a conversation, won't it? But what does this mean? God's name is jealous, that he's jealous. Is God jealous in a way that we humans are often jealous? No. Because the Hebrew word here for jealous has the idea when describing the feelings and the emotions of the Lord that he is insistent on establishing and maintaining his uniqueness in the face of all competing claims. So when scripture says that the Lord is jealous, don't think of jealous the way that we normally do. It's not picturing him as a jealous lover, like a jealous boyfriend who is very confining and very controlling and makes everyone's life miserable. That's not it at all. When God says that his name is jealous, he means that he is jealous that he be our first love, that he be our treasure. Paul Tripp says, every day there is a war fought for control of your heart, but your jealous Savior with the zeal of gorgeous redemptive love will not share your heart. He will not rest until your heart is ruled by him and him alone. And if you've been a Christian for very long, you know that that statement's true because you've experienced it. Like Rick Astley sings in his song, Never Gonna Give You Up, it says, we're no strangers to love. You know the rules and so do I. A full commitment's what I'm thinking of. That's what Jesus is thinking of. A full commitment. No competing claims to the hearts of his people. He's jealous. He alone wants your affections and love. 
He doesn't let you date around as a disciple. You are his. You belong to him. He's not okay with one night stands with other gods. And that's exactly what Rehoboam and company were up to. And so how did Rehoboam and company make the Lord angry and jealous? Number one, they worshiped at the high places, which were these elevated places of worship and were originally Canaanite worship places or churches where the Canaanites used to worship, if you will. Earlier in Israel's history, when Israel came into and occupied the land, they gave many of these high places makeovers and they worshiped Yahweh there. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 9. However, when Solomon built the temple for Yahweh, these high places were condemned. Yahweh was to be worshipped in the temple in the city of David in Jerusalem where he had put his name. The second way they provoked the Lord to anger and made him jealous is they built pillars or standing stones these Asherim, and they worshipped at these spots and under every tree that they could find, which were spots that uh, the other cultures around them would worship underneath large trees as well. So these pillars that they made, they're actually shaped like male reproductive organs, and they stood up, stood erect in place, and they worshipped the Canaanite gods Asherah, and they worshipped her lover Baal. And this provoked the Lord, obviously to anger and jealousy. The third way they provoked the Lord is they worshiped through what they called sacred prostitution. And so part of their worship, part of their church services, if you will, involved engaging in activities with these prostitutes. They called this perversion worship. This sickening, unbiblical worship provoked the Lord just like any kind of worship that is not biblical does. Listen, God is very picky. He will not let us pick and choose how we want to worship. If our worship is not Christ-centered and informed by the word of God, then it provokes the Lord. And I want nothing to do with any of that provoking Jesus business. And so Yahweh, because he loved Judah, with the zeal of a gorgeous, redemptive love. He disciplined them. King Rehoboam was disciplined by the Lord through an Egyptian pharaoh named Shishak. Listen, if we let our hearts drift from Jesus, Jesus might sick a Shishak on us. Say that ten times real fast. Sick a Shishak. And while you're saying that 10 times real fast, look at verse 25. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. And King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back to the guard room. So because of their sin and rebellion, Yahweh removed his protective covering, his protective hand from King Rehoboam and from the nation of Judah, and he opened the door for their enemies to come in. And in doing this, Yahweh is just being faithful. He's being faithful to his promise. 
faithful to the covenant that he made with his people. He told them in Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy 28, I'm going to be faithful to keep this promise. If you walk away from me and worship other gods, I will discipline you and I will allow your enemies to give you grief. And so Rehoboam has broken covenant with Yahweh. Therefore, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem and took away all the treasures of the temple. A sad day indeed when you go from having gold shields to bronze. Third place shields. Remember all those gold shields that Solomon had made back in 1 Kings chapter 10? They're all gone now. Melted down and who knows what they're turned to in Egypt. Shishak and company came in and took all that they wanted and carried them back to Egypt to decorate their homes. And so the Lord's jealousy for his people has led him to discipline the nation of Judah by sending Shishak to invade them. The Lord has removed his hand of protection, removed his hand of blessing in order to recapture their hearts. So Yahweh is not just sitting back and not getting involved in the lives of his people. As their hearts drift, he's not just sitting back and doing nothing. He has sent Shishak to discipline his people, to get their attention. And he loves us enough to do the same thing when our hearts drift. And whose heart doesn't drift from time to time? Mine does. You probably don't want to know that about your pastor, do you? That my heart drifts. But isn't that what you're looking for in a pastor? Honesty? Someone who can stand before his people and say, my heart drifts sometimes. Jesus has to come and grab me by the scruff of the neck and pull me back home. Whose heart doesn't drift from time to time? Enamored with whatever else it is out there that's got our attention. Jesus is intrusive in our lives because he's jealous. He'll interrupt our lives when we start to drift. Jesus comes to us in our sin, and in our rebellion, when we're drifting, and very tenderly he says to us, how can I hand you over? Oh, insert your name here. Let me ask you, would it really be good news if Jesus said, this to us instead when we were walking away from him? Would it be better if he said this? Look, I know you've done some awful things, but let's not discuss that stuff. I'm not a Debbie Downer. Let's keep this relationship upbeat, okay? All I want to talk about is how much I accept you and how much I love you. Would that really be good news? Could we really trust a Savior like that? Do we really want a Savior like that who just lets us live any way that we want to? Could we trust a God who never sicks a shishak on us, never sends a shishak to get our attention and to arrest our hearts? See, some people want that Jesus. Some people want a Jesus that lets them do anything that they want to, say anything that they want to, and come up with any idea about him that they want to, and then they want that Jesus to validate what they post on social media about him that's contrary to his word. Some people want that Jesus, but that is not the Jesus of the Bible. You can call him Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus of the Bible is not going to let you come up with your own ideas about who he is and what he is like. The real Jesus, 
loves us enough to accept us as we are, but not leave us there. The real Jesus of the Bible, he will accept you as you are, a broken, damaged sinner, desperately in need of a Savior, but he won't leave you there. The real Jesus loves us enough to confront us honestly. And isn't that what you're wanting in a Savior? Isn't that what you're wanting in a God, one who is honest? He loves us enough to confront us honestly and to change us. And that's good news, y'all. God cares too much for us to leave us pain-free in our rebellion and sin. He might not discipline us right away. He might delay his discipline. But it will come eventually. And when it does, it's a mercy because he is not giving us what we deserve. He actually comes and gives us himself in the middle of the discipline. And isn't that what you really want? More of Jesus? It's certainly what you need. So what's happening here in 1 Kings chapter 14 is just fundamental, basic Christianity. Yahweh demands exclusive worship. Jesus demands exclusive worship. And I know that's not very popular these days. If Jesus were on Twitter, he'd lose a lot of followers if he tweeted out that he's a jealous God who demands exclusive worship. But you see, Yahweh simply won't share space at the temple for other gods to be worshipped. He really means the first commandment. Can you believe that? He really means what he said in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. I mean, it's right there. He tells the nation of Israel, if you go after other gods, I will be angry with you and cut you off. And this eventually does happen when you get to 2 Kings chapter 17. They're sent away into exile, into Babylon. So can you really be mad at God for disciplining and bringing judgment on Rehoboam and his perverted friends who are engaging in prostitution and calling it worship, who are building these standing stones that are shaped like male reproductive organs and saying, this is God, let's worship, and let's do it with an orgy? Can you really be mad at God? Yahweh was so open and so clear about it all in his word. There's no magic. There's no sleight of hand stuff with the Lord. There's no footnotes. There's no end notes. It's all so clear. He told them, if you go after other gods, it's over. Why? Because my name is Jealous. Does that answer your questions? See, Yahweh's anger flows out of his character, out of his name, out of who he is, and he desires that he be our first love. Again, because he knows what is best for us. He knows that we will be miserable chasing after other gods. Now, when I say that we chase after other gods in our hearts drift, I'm not saying you buy some wooden statue in Jamaica on your vacation and you come home and put it on your mantle and worship it. I guess you could. I'm talking about anything that has captured our heart. It could be a relationship. It could be, I just want this new job or I want this circumstance to change or that person really drives me nuts and that can be an idol that you worship. 
that person irritates me. I don't like them. There's your idol. It can be anything. Fill in the blank. John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. We just pump out all kinds of things that we worship. And we think those things will satisfy us. We think that those things will deliver on their promises, whatever they are, and they won't. And Jesus knows this. He knows we'll be miserable about all those things that we want. If I just had this, then I'd have peace. So isn't he kind to demand our love? Isn't he kind to interrupt our lives? Isn't he kind to sick a shishak on us to get our attention? Listen, Yahweh, Jesus expects nothing but wholehearted, hot-blooded, first commandment commitment. But who can do that? None of us. None of us can live up to this standard of perfection. But one guy did. His name is Jealous. His name is Jesus. And in the gospel, he credits his perfect life to us. It's amazing. It's amazing because God expects nothing but wholehearted, hot-blooded, first commandment, commitment from us. And Jesus secures that for us so that in God's eyes, we are seen as people who are wholehearted, hot-blooded, first commandment committed to him. Wow. That's the gospel. That's amazing. That's how God sees us. He sees Jesus when he sees us. That's how God sees me. And he and I both know what I said, what I did, and what I thought last week. Wow. So when the Lord has to be faithful to discipline his children, it's because his children weren't being faithful to him. Now, of course, we're not talking about sinless perfection here. We're sinners and we all sin every day. We've probably all sinned since this church service started. Think about that. And if you think, well, I didn't sin since this first service started, well, there's pride. <laughs> I seem to recall a story in the book of Acts when people lied in church, something happened to them. I don't recommend lying in church. I jest. Well, I really don't recommend lying in church. <laughs> but I'm not saying God's going to kill you right now. He might. <laughs> I don't know what he's going to do. Like, I'm looking out for me, <laughs> okay? <laughs> We're sinners and we all sin every day. Only Jesus lived a sinless life. Only Jesus went to church and never sinned once. Only Jesus sang every song and loved every song. And not saying, I thought, I hate this song. We sing it too much. Jesus never sinned in church. What we're talking about is when our hearts get hardened to the Lord and we begin to drift. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you know what I'm talking about. And he loves us enough to capture us once again. When the Lord keeps his promise to discipline us, it is his loving response to us not loving him. Let me say that again. When the Lord keeps his promise to discipline us, it is his loving response to us not loving him. And that's exactly what the original audience of 1 Kings was being reminded of because they had walked away from the Lord. 
And they had been disciplined and taken out of Israel. But even their exile as slaves to Babylon was an act of God's love. They might have been handed over to the Babylonians, but they were not handed over for good because one day Yahweh promised them he would bring them back to the city of David, back to Jerusalem where he had put his name and they would once again enjoy his presence, once again enjoy who he is and what he is like. Yes, the gospel is true. For those of us who are trusting in Jesus alone, then his cross satisfied the condemning wrath of God against us and against our sins. And now as his children, we live in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of our heavenly father forever. That is settled. It is finished. You remain in the perpetual favor of God, Christian. I don't care what you did last week. It will not change that. You remain in the sphere of his perpetual favor towards you. And you remain in the sphere of his unabated delight. I don't care what you did last week. It's settled. It is finished. It's the gospel. It's why the word gospel means good news. Because that's good news to people like us who did what we did last week. And so our justification that we are declared righteous by God imputed with Christ's righteousness, his perfect life. Our justification and our adoption as his children is not at stake. That was settled at the cross once and for all. The sins that we can't seem to forget, Jesus can't remember. That's the gospel. But God does discipline us. And when God disciplines us, he's not punishing us. It's important to understand that. When God disciplines his children, he is not punishing his children. He punished Jesus, his only son, his perfect son, for our sins. And so when he disciplines us, here's what he is doing. He's deepening us in our sanctification. He's transforming us into his image. And sometimes that includes painful disciplines like a shishak raiding your belongings. Or like an ongoing war between you and King Jeroboam, like what we see in verse 30. And when God disciplines us, he's not trying to crush us with layer after layer of warning, layer after layer of condemnation. He's not trying to ruin the party. He's trying to keep us from ruining our lives. He intends to help us. And he can and does use all kinds of things to discipline us and get our attention. If you've been a Christian for very long, you know what I'm talking about. God can use anything to get your attention. And so whatever he uses, circumstances, relationships, work, the word of God, whatever, his intent is to help us because he loves us and he will never give us up or hand us over forever. Jesus simply loves us too much to do that. And so as we prepare for the Lord's Supper today, hear the words of the prophet Hosea once again. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Commenting on this verse, Elise Fitzpatrick says, 
The Lord has not given up on you or turned away in cold disdain. He is not waiting to visit his wrath upon you. No, his compassion toward us is warm and tender. Over and over he woos us, reaching out hands of love to embrace us in full marital bliss. We are his people and his disposition toward us is a disposition of mercy, gentleness, and compassion, not anger, hatred, or desertion. So many times I find myself trying to keep a safe distance from the Lord. I know that he loves me, but I'm not sure that what he has for me is good. So I hide and busy myself with many amusements. But this hiding carries with it a great impoverishment of heart. I long to be loved and welcomed, and I try to answer that longing in any of a thousand ways. I think I'm keeping myself from being hurt, that I don't need to be open to him and so vulnerable all the time. And it is in that very distrust that I wound myself again and again. And still he stands with loving arms, speaking tenderly to me. How can I give you up, O Elise? How can I hand you over, O, insert your name here? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. His love is unceasing. He is a faithful husband. That's what 1 Kings 14 is telling you. So insert your name in there. How can I give you up, O blank? How can I hand you over, O insert your name here? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Maybe here this morning, you just think you've gone too far. You don't know, pastor, I've gone too far. Maybe you think you've really blown it. Maybe you think you're too far beyond God's grace. Well, let me give you some good news right now. You can start over today, right now, a fresh start right now, today. You haven't drifted too far, and Jesus has not let you go. His discipline is a sign of his love. It's him calling you home. He will not give you up. He can't. What Jesus did on the cross for your sins is too costly for God to just give you up and desert you. So I don't care what kind of week you had, what you did, what you said, what you thought. Right now, as we prepare to celebrate communion, God's heart is heating up like an oven for you. Not the heat of anger the heat of his compassion. And so when we started this sermon, we set the oven, we preheated the oven at 450 degrees. Guess what? 450 degrees of Jesus' warm heart for you right now. The compassion that Jesus feels for you, Christian, grows warm and tender. Right now, it's growing warmer and warmer for you. So come to the table today and meet the tender Savior once again. He's waiting with open arms for you to just run into his arms. So hear him say to you once again, How can I give you up, O blank? How can I hand you over, O insert your name here? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. As we come to the table today to celebrate the Lord's Supper, 
let his kindness lead you to repentance. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are so kind to us, so tender, so merciful. We are so fickle. We fail you every day. We cannot measure up to the standard. We believe the lies of the idols that we create and we so easily drift away. Thank you that you do discipline us. You arrest our hearts and recapture them again. Your kindness to us is overwhelming and it's causing our hearts to come back to you now. So we repent, Jesus. We turn. We come back to you and we say, forgive us. Have mercy on us. And now as we feed on you by faith, as we eat the bread and drink the cup, would you strengthen us by your grace, strengthen us by your Holy Spirit to live for you and for your glory alone. We ask these things in your name. Amen.